And we're back with part two of The Resident Patient, carrying on with the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Super excited about uh, getting close to the end of this one. This book has probably the best ending out of any of the Sherlock books, so definitely want to stick around for that. Thank you guys for listening and sharing the podcast. Um, So yeah, I guess don't forget to enter the Sherlock contest. And without further ado, here's part two of The Resident Patient. Within a quarter of an hour, we had dropped at the door of the physician's residence in Brook Street, one of those sombre, flat-faced houses which one associates with a West End practice. A small page admitted us, and we began at once to ascend the broad, well-carpeted stair. But a singular interruption brought us to a standstill. The light at the top was suddenly whisked out, and from the darkness came a reedy, quivering voice. "'I have a pistol!' it cried. I give you my word that I'll fire if you come any nearer. This really grows outrageous, Mr. Blessington, cried Dr. Trevelyan. Oh, then it is you, Doctor, said the voice with a great heave of relief. But those other gentlemen, are they what they pretend to be? We were conscious of a long scrutiny out of the darkness. Yes, yes, it's all right, said the voice at last. "'You can come up, and I am sorry if my precautions have annoyed you.' He relit the stair-gas as he spoke, and we saw before us a singular-looking man, whose appearance, as well as his voice, testified to his jangled nerves. He was very fat, but had apparently at some time been much fatter, so that the skin hung about his face in loose pouches, like the cheeks of a bloodhound. He was of a sickly colour, and his thin, sandy hair seemed to bristle up with the intensity of his emotion. In his hand he held a pistol, but he thrust it into his pocket as we advanced. "'Good evening, Mr. Holmes,' said he. "'I'm sure I'm very much obliged to you for coming round. No one ever needed your advice more than I do. I suppose that Dr. Trevelyan has told you of this most unwarrantable intrusion into my rooms?' "'Quite so,' said Holmes. "'Who are these two men, Mr. Blessington, and why do they wish to molest you?' "'Well, well,' said the resident patient, in a nervous fashion. "'Of course, it is hard to say that. You can hardly expect me to answer that, Mr. Holmes.' "'Do you mean that you don't know?' "'Come in here, if you please. Just have the kindness to step in here.' He led the way into his bedroom, which was large and comfortably furnished. "'You see that?' he said, pointing to a big black box at the end of his bed. I have never been a very rich man, Mr. Holmes, never made but one investment in my life, as Dr. Trevelyan would tell you, but I don't believe in bankers. I would never trust a banker, Mr. Holmes. Between ourselves, what little I have is in that box, so you can understand what it means to me when unknown people force themselves into my rooms. Holmes looked at Blessington in his questioning way and shook his head. "'I cannot possibly advise you if you try to deceive me,' said he. "'But I've told you everything.' Holmes turned on his heel with a gesture of disgust. "'Good night, Dr. Trevelyan,' said he. "'And no advice for me,' cried Blessington in a breaking voice. "'My advice to you, sir, is to speak the truth.' A minute later we were in the street and walking for home. We had crossed Oxford Street and were halfway down Harley Street before I could get a word from my companion. "'Sorry to bring you out on such a fool's errand, Watson,' he said at last. "'It is an interesting case, too, at the bottom of it.' 
I can make little of it, I confessed. Well, it is quite evident that there are two men, more perhaps, but at least two, who are determined for some reason to get at this fellow Blessington. I have no doubt in my mind that both on the first and on the second occasion that young man penetrated into Blessington's room, while his confederate, by an ingenious device, kept the doctor from interfering. And the catalepsy? A fraudulent imitation, Watson, though I should hardly dare to hint as much to our specialist. It is a very easy complaint to imitate. I have done it myself. And then? By the purest chance, Blessington was out on each occasion. Their reason for choosing so unusual an hour for a consultation was obviously to ensure that there should be no other patient in the waiting-room. It just happened, however, that this hour coincided with Blessington's constitutional, which seems to show that they were not very well acquainted with his daily routine. Of course, if they had been merely after plunder, they would at least have made some attempt to search for it. Besides, I can read in a man's eye when it is his own skin that he is frightened for. It is inconceivable that this fellow could have made two such vindictive enemies as there appear to be without knowing of it. I hold it, therefore, to be certain that he does know who these men are, and that, for reasons of his own, he suppresses it. It is just possible that tomorrow may find him in a more communicative mood. Is there not one alternative? I suggested. Grotesquely improbable, no doubt, but still just conceivable. Might the whole story of the cataleptic Russian and his son be a concoction of Dr. Trevelyan's, who has, for his own purposes, been in Blessington's rooms? I saw in the gaslight that Holmes wore an amused smile at this brilliant departure of mine. "'My dear fellow,' said he, "'it was one of the first solutions which occurred to me, but I was soon able to corroborate the doctor's tale.' This young man has left prints upon the stair-carpet, which made it quite superfluous for me to ask to see those which he had made in the room. When I tell you that his shoes were square-toed instead of being pointed like Blessington's, and were quite an inch and a third longer than the doctor's, you will acknowledge that there can be no doubt as to his individuality. We may sleep on it now, for I shall be surprised if we do not hear something further from Brook Street in the morning." Sherlock Holmes's prophecy was soon fulfilled, and in a dramatic fashion. At half-past seven next morning, in the first glimmer of daylight, I found him standing by my bedside in his dressing-gown. "'There's a broom waiting for us, Watson,' said he. "'What's the matter, then?' "'The Brook Street business.' "'Any fresh news?' "'Tragic, but ambiguous,' said he, pulling up the blind. "'Look at this.' A sheet from a notebook with, for God's sake, come at once, P.T., scrawled upon it in pencil. Our friend, the doctor, was hard put to it when he wrote this. Come along, my dear fellow, for it's an urgent call. In a quarter of an hour or so, we were back at the physician's house. He came running out to meet us with a face of horror. Oh, such a business! he cried, with his hands to his temples. What then? "'Blessington has committed suicide!' Holmes whistled. "'Yes, he hanged himself during the night!' We had entered, and the doctor had preceded us into what was evidently his waiting-room. "'I hardly know what I am doing!' he cried. "'The police are already upstairs. It is shaking me most dreadfully!' "'When did you find out?' "'He has a cup of tea taken in to him early every morning, when the maid entered, about seven. 
There the unfortunate fellow was hanging in the middle of the room. He had tied his cord to the hook on which the heavy lamp used to hang, and he had jumped off from the top of the very box that he showed us yesterday. Holmes stood for a moment in deep thought. With your permission, said he at last, I should like to go upstairs and look into the matter. We both ascended, followed by the doctor. It was a dreadful sight which met us as we entered the bedroom door. I have spoken of the impression of flabbiness which this man Blessington conveyed. As he dangled from the hook, it was exaggerated and intensified, until he was scarce human in his appearance. The neck was drawn out like a plucked chicken's, making the rest of him the more obese and unnatural by the contrast. He was clad only with his long nightdress, and his swollen ankles and ungainly feet protruded starkly from beneath it. Beside him stood a smart-looking police inspector, who was taking notes in a pocket-book. "'Ah, Mr. Holmes,' said he heartily, as my friend entered, "'I am delighted to see you.' "'Good morning, Lanner,' answered Holmes. "'You won't think me an intruder, I am sure. Have you heard of the events which led up to this affair?' "'Yes, I have heard something of them.' "'Have you formed any opinion?' As far as I can see, the man has been driven out of his senses by fright. The bed has been well slept in, you see. There is his impression deep enough. It was about five in the morning, you know, that suicides are most common. That would be about his time for hanging himself. It seems to have been a very deliberate affair. I should say that he has been dead about three hours, judging by the rigidity of his muscles, said I. You noticed anything peculiar about the room? asked Holmes. Found a screwdriver and some screws on the washhand stand. Seems to have smoked heavily during the night, too. Here are four cigar ends that I picked out of the fireplace. Hmm, said Holmes. Have you got his cigar holder? No, I've seen none. His cigar case, then? Yes, that was in his coat pocket. Holmes opened it and smelled the single cigar which it contained. Oh, this is a Havana. And these other are cigars of the peculiar sort which are imported by the Dutch from their East Indian colonies. They are usually wrapped in straw, you know, and are thinner for their length than any other brand. He picked up the four ends and examined them with his pocket lens. Two of these have been smoked from a holder, and two without, said he. Two have been cut by a not very sharp knife and two have their ends bidden off by a set of excellent teeth. This is no suicide, Mr. Lanner. It is a very deeply planned and cold-blooded murder. Impossible, cried the inspector. And why? Why should anyone murder a man in so clumsy a fashion as by hanging him? That is what we have to find out. How could they get in? Through the front door. It was barred in the morning. Then it was barred after them. How do you know? I saw their traces. Excuse me a moment, and I may be able to give you some further information about it. He went over to the door, and turning the lock, he examined it in his methodical way. Then he turned out the key, which was on the inside, and inspected that also. The bed, the carpet, the chairs, the mantelpiece, the dead body, and the rope were each in turn examined, until at last he professed himself satisfied, and with my aid and that of the inspector, cut down the wretched object and laid it reverently upon the sheet. 
How about this rope? he asked. It is cut off this, said Dr. Trevelyan, drawing a large coil from under the bed. He was morbidly nervous of fire, and always kept this beside him, so that he might escape by the window in case the stairs were burning. That must have saved them the trouble, said Holmes thoughtfully. Yes, the actual facts are very plain, and I shall be surprised if by the afternoon I cannot give you the reasons for them as well. I will take this photograph of Blessington, which I see upon the mantelpiece, as it may help me in my inquiries. But you have told us nothing, cried the doctor. Oh, there can be no doubt as to the sequence of events, said Holmes. There were three of them in it, the young man, the old man, and a third, to whose identity I have no clue. The first two, I need hardly remark, are the same who masqueraded as the Russian Count and his son, so we may give a very full description of them. They were admitted by a confederate inside the house. If I might offer you a word of advice, Inspector, it would be to arrest the page, who, as I understand, has only recently come into your service, Doctor. The young imp cannot be found, said Dr. Trevelyan. The maid and the cook have just been searching for him. Holmes shrugged his shoulders. He has played a not unimportant part in this drama, said he. The three men having ascended the stairs, which they did on tiptoe, the elder man first, the younger man second, and the unknown man in the rear. My dear Holmes! I ejaculated. Oh, there could be no question as to the superimposing of the footmarks. I had the advantage of learning which was which last night. They ascended, then, to Mr. Blessington's room, the door of which they found to be locked. With the help of a wire, however, they forced round the key. Even without the lens, you could perceive, by the scratches on this ward, where the pressure was applied. On entering the room, their first proceeding must have been to gag Mr. Blessington. He may have been asleep, or he may have been so paralyzed with terror as to have been unable to cry out. These walls are thick, and it is conceivable that his shriek, if he had time to utter one, was unheard. Having secured him, it is evident to me that a consultation of some sort was held. Probably it was something in the nature of a judicial proceeding. It must have lasted for some time, for it was then that these cigars were smoked. The older man sat in that wicker chair. It was he who used the cigar holder. The younger man sat over yonder. He knocked his ash off against the chest of drawers. The third fellow paced up and down. Blessington, I think, sat upright in the bed, but of that I cannot be absolutely certain. Well, it ended by their taking Blessington and hanging him. The matter was so prearranged that it is my belief that they brought with him some sort of block or pulley which might serve as a gallows. That screwdriver and those screws were, as I conceive, for fixing it up. Seeing the hook, however, they naturally saved themselves the trouble. Having finished their work, they made off, and the door was barred behind them by their confederate. We had all listened with the deepest interest to this sketch of the night's doings, which Holmes had deduced from signs so subtle and minute that, even when he had pointed them out to us, we could scarcely follow him in his reasoning. The inspector hurried away on the instant to make inquiries about the page, while Holmes and I returned to Baker Street for breakfast. "'We'll be back by three, said he, when we had finished our meal. Both the inspector and the doctor will meet me here at the hour, and I hope by that time to have cleared up any little obscurity which the case may still present. Our visitors arrived at the appointed time, but it was a quarter to four before my friend put in an appearance. From his expression as he entered, however, I could see that all had gone well with him. 
Any news, Inspector? We've got the boy, sir. Excellent, and I have got the men. You have got them? We cried, all three. Well, at least I got their identity. This so-called Blessington is, as I expected, well known at headquarters, and so are his assailants. Their names are Biddle, Hayward, and Moffat. The Worthington Bank Gang, cried the inspector. Precisely, said Holmes. Then, Blessington must have been Sutton. Exactly, said Holmes. Why, that makes it as clear as crystal, said the inspector. But Trevelyan and I looked at each other in bewilderment. You must surely remember the great Worthington bank business, said Holmes. Five men were in it, these four and a fifth called Cartwright. Tobin, the caretaker, was murdered, and the thieves got away with seven thousand pounds. This was in 1875. They were all five arrested, but the evidence against them was by no means conclusive. This Blessington, or Sutton, who was the worst of the gang, turned informer. On his evidence, Cartwright was hanged, and the other three got fifteen years apiece. When they got out the other day, which was some years before their full term, they set themselves, as you perceive, to hunt down the traitor and to avenge the death of their comrade upon him. Twice they tried to get at him and failed. A third time, you see, it came off. Is there anything further which I can explain, Dr. Trevelyan? I think you have made it all remarkably clear, said the doctor. No doubt the day on which he was perturbed was the day that he had seen of their release in the newspapers. Quite so. His talk about a burglary was the merest blind. But why could he not tell you this? Well, my dear sir, knowing the vindictive character of his old associates, he was trying to hide his own identity from everybody as long as he could. His secret was a shameful one, and he could not bring himself to divulge it. However, wretch as he was, he was still living under the shield of British law, and I have no doubt, Inspector, that you will see that, though that shield may fail to guard, the sword of justice is still there to avenge. Such were the singular circumstances in connection with the resident patient and the Brook Street doctor. From that night nothing has been seen of the three murderers by the police, and it is surmised at Scotland Yard that they were among the passengers of the ill-fated steamer Nora Kreiner, which was lost some years ago with all hands upon the Portuguese coast, some leagues to the north of Oporto. The proceedings against the page broke down for want of evidence, and the Brook Street mystery, as it was called, has never until now been fully dealt with in any public print. You guys realize that we are pushing 150 episodes of this podcast? I can't believe it. I'm so excited to have done all these with you guys, and uh, thank you for your faithful listenership. It really is is the reason I keep doing this and the reason I enjoy doing it. Uh, Well, that and doing the fun accents is always a definite plus. So thanks, guys, for listening. Remember to share the podcast with somebody that you know who would enjoy a free audiobook. Don't forget to enter the Sherlock competition. Directions down below. It helps the podcast so much, and I would really, really appreciate it. Hey, and also, if you guys have any suggestions, uh, comments, thoughts, uh, maybe a book that you want to hear next, or I, I love doing indie author stuff. If any of you guys are indie authors, know any indie authors, get in touch with me. I would love to hear from you. All the contact information is down below. And yeah, have a good week. We'll talk to you next time.
When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written, and best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist.